Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management. On WTMJ. Good morning. It is Money Talk and WTMJ. My name is Danny Clayton, Dave Spano, Annex Wealth Management President. Hey, Dave. Nice to see you, Danny. And uh, Derek Felsky, welcome back. Uh, nice to see you, Danny. Um, Mark Oswald, what, out of the Grateful Dead show? At, uh, <laughs> I, I doubt it. That's not his thing. <laughs> That's not his thing. So let's uh, cover the week because there was a lot going on. It certainly was. And obviously, the Chinese tariffs were back and the headlines again. And of course, we start talking about Chinese tariffs and then there's the tit for tat. You know, you think about it, Derek, and really from what we import to what we export, we are really in a pretty good position. That's right, Dave. And when the last data that I saw is China exported about $505 billion in merchandise to the U.S., whereas the U.S. only exported $129 billion from China. So clearly the U.S. has a lot of ground to make up if tariffs are unequal or, and there isn't re reciprocity. So five times as much goes out than comes in, and that means, of course, that we do have leverage. And I know that the president is certainly negotiating. He is the chief negotiator. And I think there's something to this, to the fact that we have some leverage. And you talk about what could really happen, but in the meantime, you see domestic stocks Caterpillar and Deer, of course, the whole industrial sector continues to get beat up. They are. They're the ones that obviously would be the most vulnerable. For example, several years ago in China, there was an issue, a trade issue with, with Japan, and they basically pronounced a boycott of Toyota sales in China, and that actually worked. So the Chinese government does have the ability to influence the purchasing decisions of companies inside China. The other thing in this trade dispute that's often forgotten, though, is there are U.S. companies with headquarters in China that sell a great deal of merchandise there, which is not measured in the trade imbalance. In fact, if you total it all up, China and the U.S. are roughly even in terms of net, on a net basis, when you consider sales inside each country. Dirk, does it matter that their stock market is down 20%? What what does that tell us? I think it does tell you what Dave suggested, that the, the U.S. does have leverage, that the president continues to push this button, not just with China, but also with the EU, with Japan, Canada, etc. Uh, so this, this is something that certainly unnerved investors a little bit. It, it does put the global growth story in, in somewhat of a more of a suggestive mode. And it's just something we've had to watch you know, on a day-to-day -day basis for several months. That is right, Danny. So right now, they are just at the cusp of a bear market in China. So they're feeling it as well. And all at the same time, the U.S. dollar Derek has been strengthening at the same time that the international environment has been weakening, and that means domestic companies are doing better, particularly small caps. Yeah, and, and we've talked about earnings, and, and the first quarter that was spectacular, the second quarter is shaping up to be another really strong quarter uh, for U.S. companies, but this week, the small cap index made a new all-time high, despite pressure in the Dow led by weakness in Boeing and Caterpillar. As you mentioned, the stronger dollar is going to handicap multinational to some degree, so there's been a rotation when it 
within the market in the United States, which actually, if you think about it, is pretty healthy. That's right, Derek. That is healthy. And of course, when you see this rotation from sector to sector, industrial is not doing well, but there are still parts of the market that are doing very well. Technology and consumer discretionaries still are getting inflows. And, and they are typically aggressive sectors. They're the sectors of the market that tend to do well when investors expect growth to continue for the foreseeable future. I mean, the thing about consumer discretionary that I think is interesting is, you know, we use an ETF, XLY, which is a S&P Spider ETF on the sector base. We use that tactically. And Amazon is roughly 25% of that, that index. Now, that, that is concerning to some, but Amazon continues to do extremely well. What's changed is over the last several months, bricks and mortar retailers like, you know, Kohl's and Nordstrom's and Macy's have done significantly better. And that was only buttressed this week by a Supreme Court decision, which basically said that states are going to be able to collect internet sales taxes, whether a company has bricks and mortar presence in that state or not. And what was interesting about that is things like REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, they went up as well because they said maybe there is something to bricks and mortar. We'll have to see if that is really the case. Let me just uh, switch gears a second. You started to talk about earnings. We had an unbelievably good earnings quarter, up 26% in the first quarter. The second quarter is expected to be another 20% up. We'll see if that happens, but earnings have been really, really good. They are, and another good sign for the earnings season, which will begin about the middle of July, is that for the first couple of months of this quarter, earnings estimates actually went up rather than down. Typically, estimates go down as the quarter proceeds. So, you know, aside from the fact that the Atlanta Fed is looking for 4% GDP in Q2, you also have earnings expectations rising for, for U.S. companies. So that should put the market on firm footing despite the uncertainty about trade. What time's your tea time today? Not for a while. Okay, can you hang out for a little bit? I certainly can. It's Money Talk on WTMJ. Money tips that don't cost a thing. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management for Saturday, June 23rd. My name is Danny Clayton. Derek Felsky, our Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management is here. And Dave Spano, President of Annex Wealth Management. Danny, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the Federal Reserve, and we have done that a lot on the show. And the fact that, you know, the Fed is really in a difficult position to raise rates. Derek, they seem to be hell-bent on raising rates throughout the rest of the year. And that is somewhat concerning because we're starting to see what's called a flattening of the yield curve. We are. In the last uh, Fed minutes, we heard that basically the Fed is now expecting to raise rates four times this year. Previously, the market had thought it would only be three. And for the dot plots, which is their expectations for future interest rates in 2019, suggest four more hikes in 2019. Now, we all know this is fluid. It's going to be data dependent. Their opinions will change, for example, if something were to happen overseas, if the Eurozone got in trouble, if Japanese growth failed or, or the Chinese... Uh, economy started to, to flounder. But but basically, the Fed is trying to normalize rates. And what, what I've tried to say to people, not just on this show, but just on a personal level, is that rates still remain accommodative. The Fed funds rate is basically in line with the rate of inflation, and it typically doesn't cause a major headwind for stocks until it's about 200 basis points, or 2% above inflation, which would be another 200 basis point increase. Unless, of course, they invert the yield curve, where shorter rates are higher than longer rates, and that has 
has not been a good sign for the equities. Maybe the equity markets begin to be a vigilante if that begins to happen. Again, even when they've inverted the yield curve in the past, we don't usually see a recession for anywhere from 12 to 18 months later. And stocks typically don't decline until about six months before the onset of a recession. So again, until we see an inversion of the yield curve, I think you have to remain reasonably positive on prospects for stocks, particularly when the corporate earnings picture and and the profile for stronger earnings for the balance of this year become manifest. Let's talk about that. So we have a flattening of the yield curve, which actually is a good thing because we see equities do well when it flattens. When it inverts, that's something else. But GDP report out of Atlanta said 4.7%. Now, they've been a little aggressive over the last couple of reports, but a 4% print of GDP is excellent for our economy. Well, and I remember when the Trump administration took over, they were suggesting that we were going to go from that one5 to 2% GDP growth that we saw during the Obama years to something north of 3%. And, and whether this quarter comes in at 4.8, 4.0, 3.8, the trend is clearly towards 3% GDP growth in 2018 with a muted rise in the, ra- in the rate of inflation and a CapEx cycle that is just starting to get other way due to some of the fiscal stimulative measures that were put in place just several months ago. And as you suggest, we are in a Goldilocks environment where we have growth in earnings, which is a really good thing, and low interest rates. I mean, that's really a great spot for equities. It is. I mean, the one, there are, of course, challenges. I mean, we've rallied a lot since 2009. Uh, interest rates, short-term interest rates in particular, moved up rather dramatically. Now that two-year note is trading at a higher yield than the dividend yield on the S&P. So there are alternatives to stocks. But as long as you have a strong earnings backdrop and and sluggish stock performance, which is what we've really seen so far this year, the equity market is now cheaper than it was at the beginning of the year. And I think people need to forecast what kind of multiple we will see on earnings expectations that we see going forward. And, you know, I can easily make the case that if you take 16 times what we expect earnings to be in 2019, you're looking at S&P of around 3,000, which which is up about 15% from where we currently are. So let's do a deeper dive in some of the stocks that haven't done well, because we're talking about the S&P. Well, the Dow Jones is something that most retail investors pay attention to, and there was a change in the components of the Dow, which is kind of interesting for you and I, because uh, you and I were out uh, having a conversation with some folks uh, several months ago, and you suggested to an employee of General Electric that GE was going to be removed from the Dow, and his head about blew off. Yeah, he, he thought I'd had too many drinks at the time. But really, the, the reason that GE comes out of the Dow isn't because people question the long-term uh, viability of that company. It's because this is a price-weighted index. And as GE's price declined, and remember, it's down over 50% in the last 12 months, its impact on the Dow had become almost negligible. So basically what happened is GE's dropping out. Uh, Walgreens is taking its place. Again, a, 60, a $12 stock to a $65 stock, so it's more representative. But it also shows that this economy is changing over time. You know, technology is becoming more more and more important. The Dow actually has a fairly high industrial weighting, which is why it was weak this week, because Boeing and Caterpillar lagged the market. But basically, we're moving towards a more of a technology-driven society, and companies that have been able to better take advantage of technology are, are tending to do better, basically. Danny's got a confused look on his face about why GE's impact is negligible. Actually, I was going to ask, is the was Walgreens next stock up? Were they the next one that was going to go in the Dow? Well, it was one of, uh, one of many thoughts. I mean, the two areas of the, the economy that have grown the most in the last 10, 15 years are technology and consumer discretionary. And depending upon the price of a stock, when they consider inclusion, they have to think about the, the, the ramifications of that. So you're not going to see something like Amazon go into the Dow because at $1,700 a share, it would have an inordinately large impact on the Dow on a daily basis. I promise we're going to get you out of here. Can you stay for one more? I can. 
It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, 1021 for Saturday, June 23rd. Know the difference. We always encourage that. Just head to our website. It is AnnexWealth.com. You'll see team. You'll see technology. You'll see trust. Those of you regular listeners here at WTMJ, you know that when I first started the show, I was just kind of hosting the Saturday morning lineup. Now, I actually work for Annex Wealth Management as the marketing content manager. So one thing that I'm doing is telling a bunch of the stories of Annex Wealth Management. Coming up, we've got a conversation with the uh, the planning team and I really have a soft spot for the planning team because these are the people that will go through your information and see how they can run the numbers so you can have that great retirement they're they're really really fun they're really really smart that's coming up still to come on money talk annex wealth management spreading the wealth every Saturday here's more money talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ Looking forward to this. It's a conversation about timeshares. Patrick Noble is joining me, financial planning specialist, Annex Wealth Management. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Danny. How are you today? Good, thanks. We had a recent discussion about annuities on the show, and like annuities, timeshares can sometimes have a bad reputation. However, there's many applications where it's just right. Why do timeshares have this reputation? You're absolutely right. In fact, what often happens is people will be approached for a timeshare presentation with offers of trips or gold ingots or limousine rides. I think the timeshare connotation between annuities and timeshares comes from the sales tactics. So is a timeshare an investment? Timeshare is not investment. Don't think of a timeshare as an investment. It's more of a purchase and a vacation lifestyle, right? Think of a timeshare as a car. As soon as you drive off the lot, it's going to depreciate. There's two types of timeshares. There's deeded and non-deeded. Most are deeded. How, what does that mean? When timeshares first started back in the 70s, there was an overabundance of condominiums in Florida. Literally, in 1974, Brain Trust got together and said, how do we get rid of these condos where we're going to form deeded partnerships, where we're going to have people buy in and they're locked in from anywhere to 75 years to the rest of their life. The other form of timeshares are called non-deeded timeshares, also known as timeshares, where you don't outright own the resort, you own a portion of the resort. Deeded timeshares is when you own the unit, you pay maintenance fees, you vote for board of directors, and you're going to pay for all those things. When somebody gets a timeshare, they pay X, they're going to pay the annual fees. What do they get for that? It can be anywhere from four weeks a year. It could be down to two weeks a year. Oftentimes, there'll be incentives in the first five years. Let's say we'll give you four weeks where you can go to X, Y, and Z, and normally that'll go down to maybe one week or two weeks. Are those dates always locked? They're not. All right, you have some flexibility. There are certain types which we call fixed weeks, which are locked. But as timeshares are coming of age, what we're finding is that there's more flexibility built into them where you have flexibility to go week in August, you can go in June, you can go in July, but you've got to do some planning. You mentioned annual fees. So can you talk a little bit about what that pays for? Yeah. So maintenance fees, just like your home, right? You invest in your lawn, you invest in paint, keeping the upkeep of the house. Same is true with the timeshare. So there's going to be a company that maintains the property. Uh, they'll maintain the units. If it's attached to a beach, let God forbid there's a storm and let's oh, say sure. that beach is wiped out, that maintenance fee is going to rebuild that beach. Can you sell timeshares? You can sell timeshares. Is it tough to sell timeshares? It absolutely is difficult to sell timeshares. Okay, so if it's difficult to sell timeshares, it must be great to buy them, right? The resale market for timeshares is absolutely bloated. 
there's much more supply than demand. In fact, if you go out there right now and look on various websites that foster resale of timeshares, you could buy one for pennies on the dollar. We are talking timeshares. Patrick Noble, financial planning specialist, Annex Wealth Management is here. Now, you had a client case that you wanted to share, and I think this is really interesting. We work with a client who approached us, and this is not something we normally do here at Annex, but we want to, of course, help our clients in every financial aspect that we can. This particular client bought a timeshare with her husband about 10 years ago in Hawaii. Unfortunately, within 18 months of that purchase, her husband passed away. So we've got a timeshare, we've got no husband, we've got a spouse who has, since that purchase, never stepped foot on the property. Ouch. Now, she had that initial upfront purchase price of about $20,000, refinanced it to pay off that balance, but still was on the hook for the annual maintenance fees, which began approximately two to $3,000 a year. In the last five years, they were about $6,000 a year. So imagine this, Danny, 10 years, you're cutting a check every December of $6,000 and you're having not stepped foot on that property mm. at all. So I did some research and while we talked about selling timeshares, there's another great way to get out of timeshares as well. And this is a perfect circumstance for her because she has an extenuating circumstance where her spouse passed. We approached the timeshare resort owner with the request that we would like to redeed the property back to them. Simply redeed it, walk away, and no longer pay that $6,000 check that she was cutting every December. A little bit of battle to do that because the first two responses we got were letting us know that there's a robust resale market and that's the direction we should go. After a few more phone calls, we eventually got to the right person and explained the circumstances, the fact that the client hadn't stepped foot on this property in the last 10 years, been diligently paying her annual maintenance fees. They agreed to repurchase the property so she'll no longer have to pay that maintenance fee. And she's happy with just being able to walk away from the property. Patrick Noble, financial planning specialist, Annex Wealth Management. And in complete disclosure, you have a timeshare. Take us through the process how you got there. So we were in Mexico a couple of years ago with another couple who owned the timeshare. Uh, we ended up sitting through a presentation based on the value for what we were getting with our two little boys, my wife, my versus the cost of a hotel for something comparable over, let's say, a five, 10-year period. For us, it made sense. We knew we were going to be going on vacation every year. We knew what we were going to be expecting. We wanted a lifestyle purchase. We've got a lot of flexibility within those eight properties. And if we want to go hella skiing in the Swiss Alps, we can. Send us pictures. we Will do. Patrick Noble, financial planning specialist, Annex Wealth Management. Very informative very educational. Thanks for spending some time. My pleasure, Danny. From simple investments to stock advice, back to Money Talk with Dane Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Look who's here, the financial planning team. Randy Winkler heads up this merry band of stragglers. Hey, Randy. Hey, Danny. How you doing? Good. We're calling this Tale of Three Clients, and I love going to you guys and getting stories. Well, we've got a bunch of them. We do over 100 financial plans per week with either creating them or updating them, so we see a lot. 
Good. You got Ron Johnson. He's number one. Yep. Ron Johnson, our senior financial planner on the team, he had an interesting experience with somebody who was concerned about early retirement. As much as retirement can be a very exciting time, it can create a little bit of anxiety, and I'll tell you why. Up until retirement, you have had a consistent paycheck, and when you make that decision to retire, that's going to go away, and it creates a little bit of anxiety for people. First, they wonder, have I saved enough? Two, they wonder, where is the income each month going to come from to replace my paycheck? So how did you help? So they were looking at retiring it in their mid-50s. Nice. Yeah, right? right? They had some anxiety because, first of all, they didn't understand, one, that they had saved a pile of money, but they weren't quite sure would it last their entire lifetime. Because really, we're looking at their retirement lasting possibly longer than 40 years. So first, we had to model that out and help them understand that, yeah, you indeed have enough money. We think there's very little risk of you running out of money in your lifetime. So we think from that perspective, you're in a good spot. Had they done financial planning? We did along the way. Again, that anxiety is there sure. because they're about to make an irreversible decision. They're yeah. going to say, you know, I'm going to forego this large paycheck that I receive each month forever. And there can be some challenges with retiring early as well. Right. So the next thing that they had anxiety of is how do I replace that income? I've got all these different assets. I've got some deferred income, 401k assets. I've got IRAs. I've got some taxable savings. From a tax-efficient perspective, where do I go to avoid penalties and also to minimize my tax liability to fund my retirement goals, especially between 55 and 60? So what do we do? In their instance, we took their spending goal and first of all, we backed out their fixed income sources. For them, it was some deferred comp that was coming in. That helped us understand how much they're going to have to pull from their portfolio each year from 55 to 60. And then uh, from your 401k, once you leave your company, after age of 55, you can pull those assets out penalty-free to fund retirement. In this instance, we understood how much they're going to have to take from their portfolio each year between 55 and 60, and we left those funds in the 401k. And we're the able rest, to avoid the penalty, so that's yep, fantastic. Yep, and the rest of the money we rolled into an IRA for future growth. Well, thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We also have Eric Strom here. He's a financial planning specialist, and he had an interesting situation with a client who inherited an annuity. This is a story from a client meeting that I was actually in earlier this week, and unfortunately, this client had lost a loved one. As a result of that, they had inherited a non-qualified annuity. Now, this is a special type of annuity that's not within a retirement account. And because of that, there are extra complications. Whenever you inherit a non-qualified annuity, you'll receive a whole stack of paperwork that if you start reading through this, you're going to get confused because you'll see... Very, all... very complicated. Yes. So there are... And if you guys are saying it's complicated, that's really scary. <laughs> There's all kinds of IRS code rules about taxation implications and all sorts of aspects to consider. Uh, there's cash flow considerations to take into account, uh, even behavioral finance considerations to take into account when you think about how you're going to elect benefits that you have from receiving this inherited annuity. Stepping back for a minute, let me say that many people who are in the business of selling annuities would view this opportunity as the perfect chance to sell a new annuity and earn a commission for themselves. And sometimes this actually is the best strategy for the client. But it's also important to know that sometimes buying a new annuity might not be the answer um, if you inherit a non-qualified annuity. So yesterday, when the client turned to us here at Annex for advice, I sat across from her and I was able to walk her through the paperwork and help her select the best option for her. And I was just happy to be in this situation where I was not pressuring her into a new product, especially at a time where she might be grieving as a result of this death of a loved one. Thanks, Eric. And I think that's an interesting thing about Annex and how we do business is that we're it's unbiased advice. We're going to do what's 
What's best? This is a tale of three clients, so we've had two. Randy, it's your turn. Oh, okay. This is a story of someone that I've worked with for quite a while. The wife and the couple, she had a really, really nice pension benefit. So we took a look at it when it was time for her to retire to say, do we take the pension or do we take the lump sum? When lump sum, you get a large sum of money one time with the pension. It's a paycheck for life or for a defined period of time. It could be over uh, 10 years. You also could say, okay, I want to take the maximum benefit. And then if I die, the benefit goes away, which doesn't do much to protect the spouse, her husband in this case. Or we could say we want to take a 50% benefit for the spouse after the annuitant dies. Lots of different situations there. But taking a look at their entire financial plan, what we did is we took the maximum pension benefits for for the wife and then we took out life insurance to protect that so if something would happen to her the pension would go away that income source is lost the husband then would live off of the life insurance what happened unfortunately and this is why we do planning the husband died unexpectedly we were able to cancel the life insurance and the wife has the full pension uh, for the rest of her life. If she had picked a, a different option, she would have been protecting her husband, who was unfortunately no longer with us. We're talking with the Annex Wealth Management planning crew. How many of these a week do you go through? I think right an hour, probably between 100 and 140 in a typical week. We're either creating them or updating them and looking for new opportunities. Most of the time, do you say, oh, we, we've seen this before? Every once in a while, it must something must come in where it's like, okay, this is totally new. Yeah, that's one of the fun parts of the job when we find the new ones. But the nice thing is, is we have seen these and we get, you get to see the patterns. And when we do run across the interesting ones, we, we're very good about documenting that. So when it comes up again, we say, oh, we've seen that. We can do this. I love the planning department. Ron Johnson, <laughs> Eric Strom, and Randy Winkler, thanks for coming in, guys. Thanks, Danny. Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, 23rd. I'm Danny Clayton. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer, is here, and so is Dave Spano, President, Annex Wealth Management. There was a really good topic that we were talking about, and that is that GE being removed from the Dow Jones is important because they're being removed because it's a price-weighted index, and a $10 stock versus a $200 financial stock has a much more of an impact on that index. It, it does, and and the other thing I just want to remind our listeners, I mean, some of you may, may actually still hold General Electric. You might have large baked-in capital gains from years ago. And, and you held it because it had a strong dividend. Well, that obviously is not quite the case now. They've cut their dividend recently. But historically, when it, when the Dow removes a, a company and replaces with another, the company that was removed has actually outperformed the company they added most of the time in the subsequent year. And I just, think the last five times that they've removed something, that stock has gone up. Yeah, and it just goes to show you that chasing performance either in a positive way or a negative way can lead to uh, inferior results. All right, moving on, Derek. There was, uh, there was stress tests that came out again this past week, and some companies, well, in fact, all the financial companies did well, but not as well as others. No, and, and essentially what, what they're looking at is they're trying to decide how, how a bank would perform in the event of a severe economic downturn. And the two banks that, that actually showed the weakest results from a sort of a 20,000-foot level were Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Now, one could argue whether they should be subjected to the same measures as other banks like J.P. Morgan, Citicorp, uh, because so much of what they do has to do with trading results and, and lending short-term and volatility and so on. And Goldman Sachs would actually argue that those results were simplistic. But it is something that we're monitoring because we have believed very much in the financial story, the financial sector as a tactical weighting. And with the valuations where they are, our quantitative work suggests the financial sector generally is very fairly valued. And so you talk about rising interest rates, and that is that is a good place for uh, financial stocks to, to be. However, the financial sector really hasn't done that 
well over this last recovery, and we'll see we'll see what happens going forward. It's been a choppy market, no doubt. I mean, for example, healthcare, which many believe has great demographic characteristics, a, a real tailwind, if you will. Healthcare stocks, particularly pharma stocks, which are generally seen as safe havens, have not performed well so far this year. Whereas, on the other hand, consumer discretionary and technology continue to make new all-time relative highs, uh, with strong earnings supporting that. So there is also a realignment of other indexes, including some in the small cap. So we get to the end of the quarter, and there's this, as a mutual, a former mutual fund manager, recovering mutual fund manager, <laughs> you know that there was these quarter-end window dressing. Can you explain to me what that means? Well, what that is, is, is basically we take snapshots of portfolios at the end of quarters. This is as a mutual fund company would, right? And so basically what you show is what you owned at the end of the quarter. Now, some folks who perhaps are lagging the market wish they might have had Amazon in their portfolio. Well, they'll put Amazon in their portfolio. It won't mean that anybody made any money in it, but it looks better. It leads to less contentious uh, client meetings, institutional research meetings, and the like. It does absolutely nothing for your performance. In fact, probably in the long run, it hurts it, because if you're one of those folks that is constantly window dressing, it says that you're not a really particularly good manager. That's total window dressing. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So, all right, switching topics. We're heading into the 4th of July, which is usually the peak of the driving season. So I guess we have to talk about oil prices and what OPEC is pulling right now. Well, OPEC, to the surprise of many, you know, re- reduced production levels about a year ago, which helped to stabilize the oil market. Remember, the oil market, oil was under $30 a barrel. It got north of 70 Some were thinking it might get to $80. And OPEC, just this week, decided to raise production by 600,000 barrels a day, which was a little short of what people thought. Many thought they were going to raise it by a million barrels a day. And as a result, the price of oil was up about 4% on, on Friday. So even though gas prices have retraced recently, they still are up 20% on a year-over-year basis, which, of course, hampers some consumers. Just to wrap up, and I promise that we're going to get you out of here, but we are certainly seeing a rotation. If people have stuff in their portfolios, it certainly isn't a set-it-and-forget-it environment. You know, we're seeing small caps versus large cap. We're seeing domestic versus international. We're seeing outflows of particular areas. And there's really, there's, you could argue there's a bear market in industrials right now, so it doesn't matter what you own. Well, I, th- I think the, the number one thing I would suggest investors look at, if they've been fortunate enough to own companies like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet, some of these stocks are up over 1,000% in the last five years. And if you've held those during this entire period of time, your technology weighting in your portfolio is probably very high, probably the highest it's ever been. Whereas at the same time, defensive stocks have basically halved on a relative basis over the last five years. So some tweaking around the edges, perhaps reducing technology exposure a little bit, adding a little consumer staples exposure, whether it's through somebody like Walmart or Costco or a Procter & Gamble might make some sense. Derek Felsky, Chief Investment Officer. Hit them along, hit them straight. Is that what I say? That's what I'd like to do. All right, head to AnnexWealth.com. You'll see Team Technology Trust. You'll also be able to sign up for that free portfolio analysis and also Axiom, which is our free weekly newsletter. Again, AnnexWealth.com. Get professional help with your portfolio. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Let's talk financial wellness. We have a coach in the studio. Hey, Colleen Henderson, how are you? I'm fine. You're not going to make me give you 20. 
right? I'm not. Drop, drop and get you 20. All right. Also riding along, Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services. Tom, a couple of weeks ago, Colleen was on the show, and we're just talking a little bit about her search for a financial advisor she could trust. But just at the end, she said, and I'm working on some cool stuff. We want to talk just a little bit more about what Annex is going to be offering with financial wellness. Can you sure. tell us a little? What can you tell us? We have been working on this project for a while. Financial wellness is a big issue and has been for a long time. And our industry has, I think, gotten a really good grasp around some of the problems that people have financially and then some solutions for people, more importantly. And that's what we've been working on and what Colleen's going to be delivering to our clients. So we hear wellness in general of just people's overall wellness. And those are things like maybe, you know, losing weight, doing steps, stopping smoking, things like that. What is the financial part of wellness? Same basic concepts. You know, good behaviors in finance lead to very similar results than what you get in health wellness. Colleen, you're a coach, so do these things kind of jump out at you as you go through different cases with people? Well, I think uh, one of the things you want to think about with financial wellness is preparing not just for today, but for the long run. And so we want to get people started on thinking about their financial position, where they're positioned, and what kinds of things they need to do. For example, preparing a budget or looking at how much they need to save for retirement. Things like that will help them get financially well and have less financial stress in their life. Are those the baby steps, which you just mentioned? They are baby steps, yes. And there are a number of them along the way. That's certainly one of them. I think an overall financial plan is a good place to start. And then you want to look at how you make decisions about how you spend your money on a daily basis, how you can save for an emergency, for example, or how you might want to save for something like a college education or for purchasing a new home. There's enough ways that we can get stressed in today's world. Financial stress is real. It is very real, and it actually has something to do with physical wellness as well, because the two of them are tied together. If you're financially stressed, you may be feeling that physically as well, and it has an impact on how you perform at work. There are a lot of statistics that back up what Colleen's saying here, and that's what we've looked at as we've been trying to put together this program for our clients is the impact that that stress has on them physically, but also the productivity at work and the cost to employers of having stressed employees is documentable and it's tremendous. So if you're sitting doing your nine to five and you're thinking about bills that aren't getting paid or or goals that aren't going to be met, that manifests itself at work. According to a Price Waterhouse Cooper study, 50% of people spend three or more hours each week at work on personal financial issues. So that alone, never mind the stress, kind of speaks to the, the productivity issues that come from financial stress. You know, we're supposed to be doing work and we're on a different website checking out something else. Yeah, or yeah. thinking about it, being distracted by it. And this is people who say they're actually spending the time on it. That doesn't include the time they're thinking about it and it's distracting them from other issues. So this is a very real issue that, that we're super excited to be uh, working with people to, to make better. Tom Parks is the Director of Retirement Plan Service is here at Annex, Colleen Henderson, a financial wellness coach. How do we implement it with people that we're working with? We're in the initial stages of rolling out the program that we have, and it's going to be leveraging technology and Colleen in her ability to do in-person consultations with people and presentations and facilitate workshops. So it's a pretty comprehensive program that we're rolling out with our clients. So these companies that we work with to help them set up their 401ks, are these just any companies that are interested in working with us? It's both. We are doing this with the clients with whom we do retirement plans, but we're also doing it separately because financial wellness, without regard to whether you have a retirement plan, the issues that manifest themselves are the same for all companies. Well, I would think that this comes through the HR department and companies, you'd hope, would want 
want to offer great and improved benefits to their employees. Financial wellness is one of those things. And also, it helps with retention, I would think. Absolutely. There are two things to think about there. One is, if you're looking for a new job and you're comparing different employers' offerings, one of the things that you would consider, this is a great benefit, and uh, the same study suggests that 76% of the individuals who are attracted to a company would care more about their financial well-being. So that financial well-being offering is part of what they bring to the table, and it's just one more thing that they can say, hey, here's something that you can have if you work here. I think that's something we probably all do. We look at the benefits that a mm-hmm. company would have, but have you seen anything where millennials pick through this a little bit more carefully? There's a lot of data that shows that millennials absolutely do. They go through, they look at the benefits, they try to understand them, and then they go online and they start comparing them. The other thing is there's a, a feel-good aspect to financial wellness that I think does call to millennials in particular. It's one of those things that it's, it's the right thing to do. Uh, it's good for your employees. And it's good for the bottom line for the company. It's really a win-win scenario for everyone involved. Again, this is in the fairly new stages. Colleen, have you you've been out with a couple companies and do, doing this? Are you kind of sharpening things up? What we've done so far is we've put a group of companies together to help us look through all the potential offerings, financial offerings. For example, we could have various modules that they can offer to their employees as a way to start out with the program. And once we get some feedback about that, how it's working out, how people, you know, what they like to see, that will make a big difference in terms of what we offer in the future as well. People are interested. How do they how do they reach out to Annex and find out more? Sure. Well, uh, people are welcome to reach out to me or to Colleen, 262-786-6363. Check out our website. I think you'll see more information is going to be coming out as we refine this process. We're very excited about delivering this to, to our clients. I think it's awesome. Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services. Colleen Henderson, Financial Wellness Coach. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's it for our uh, Money Talk for this week for Saturday, June 23rd. Again, we encourage you, head to AnnexWealth.com. You'll see Know the Difference. It's team. It is technology, trust, and a couple of things. If anything, sign up for the Axiom, which is a free weekly newsletter. We work really hard on it, and it's a lot of fun and some great information. You can do that at AnnexWealth.com. Also, the free portfolio analysis.